Hey everyone, it's Anita and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. So for our Tuesday episode this week, we interviewed Jesse Powell. He's the founder and CEO of Kraken. Kraken is the fourth largest crypto exchange in the world by volume. Jesse announced last month that he is stepping down from the CEO role and will become chairman with Dave Ripley, Kraken COO, replacing Powell in the top role. So Jesse Powell attracted plenty of attention in headlines earlier this year when Kraken released a manifesto outlining the company's crypto-first values and culture. They offered an exit package to employees at that time who felt that they didn't align with those values. And after that, the New York Times reported that Powell had made a number of controversial comments on the company's Slack channel, and those comments caused an uproar among some Kraken employees as well as the broader crypto community. We had a really interesting chat with Jesse about what went down this year at the exchange and why he's moving on from the CEO role at the company he founded 11 years ago. Hey, Jesse, thanks for joining us. Hey, Lucas, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I mean, this has been a chaotic year for crypto, a lot of big growth amongst exchanges. It's been a big year for Kraken. You know, it's been a little bit of a controversial year for you. To start things off, how do you feel about no longer being CEO of the company that you started several years ago? Well, I'm still CEO for a bit longer. Okay. You know, while we do this transition, but I see it as a step up into the chairman role. So I look at it as a promotion. I get to work on more of the things that I really enjoy working on and uh, less the day-to-day stuff that comes with being the the CEO of a heavily regulated financial services company. You know, as you might imagine, there's a, a lot of unfun things about that for someone who's really a product person. Yes. I mean, on the product side, are you pretty focused on the mission of Kraken in the chairman role? I mean, I guess you see a lot of kind of CEO changes or people stepping into the chairman position. You can't really tell if it's like a just sit on the sidelines thing or if you're going to be like shadow CEO or something like that. Like what kind of chairman do you want to be? I definitely don't want to be shadow CEO. I have a lot of confidence in Dave to run the company. You know, I think at the board level, I can work on other things, you know, that I think are are impactful for the wider industry and that affect the company kind of at a higher level. I can be more external facing. I can work on policy. You know, I really enjoy working on product as well. And uh, so I hope to be able to spend more time deeply in the product. So I don't want to kind of usurp Dave's authority or anything like that. I hope to just be able to spend more time in the weeds on product and kind of help from the outside where I can. And, you know, hopefully for me, it'll be, you know, I'll take it down from a hundred hour a week job to maybe a part-time 60 hours a week. (laughs) (laughs) That's part-time in crypto for sure. But no, Jesse, you mentioned wanting to work a little bit more on some external stuff outside of Kraken that's more for the ecosystem. What sorts of things were you talking about there? Was it like lobbying? Like you mentioned that. Yeah, lobbying for sure. You know, I, I think that the attacks on crypto are escalating. I think governments around the world are taking it more seriously these days. And, you know, I think also with just the increasing problems with the legacy financial system with fiat currencies, I think that currency choice is getting to be something that the incumbency is more of a threat. And so I think there needs to be an equal ramp up in kind of the counter positions in our force as an industry to prevent some of this bad legislation from passing and, and make sure that the legislation that is crafted suits the industry's needs and um, is friendly to the consumer, you know, and isn't just further insulating the legacy financial system or, you know, further building up the moats for the legacy system that are in place, uh, which ultimately, you know, harm billions of people around the world who are left out of that system. We we talked a little bit about lobbying. It's a very interesting era for not just a crypto CEO, but a tech CEO in general. I think that as someone head of an exchange, you're expected to be in front of congressional panels and stuff like that. And like, it's a very forward facing position. I guess, do you 
feel as you're kind of stepping out of the CEO position? Do you feel like you're a little bit, I don't know, not to say too much, but I guess like a little bit more of like a crypto radical who maybe might have a tough time kind of interacting with like the regulators and stuff like that. And they want to have someone who's a little bit more like even keeled. Like, do you get what I'm saying there? Yeah. You know, I've been doing this for over 11 years now, and we've been heavily engaged with regulators since 2013, really, since that guidance from FinCEN came out that basically said, you know, this is not World of Warcraft gold. This is actually (laughs) real money. and We're going to regulate it like real money. You know, we've been engaged since then. I think I've had very positive experiences working with the regulators. You know, I think for them, what matters is being able to break down complex topics into simple terms mm-hmm. and explain it to them and explain to them why it should matter to their constituents and why it's actually good for people. And, you know, there's this narrative, you know, I think that narrative is going away, but it was that, you know, early on the crypto was just for criminals. And, mm-hmm. you know, anytime someone brings that up, you just have to ask, well, like people are using the dollar for Criminals are using the dollar. Criminals are using cell phones, the internet. You know, where are we going to draw the line? And the question is not like, are there bad things we can point to about this technology, you know, as we can with any technology, but is this an improvement for some people? Does it actually help people? Is it net positive for the world? And, you know, I think politicians largely are just, you know, they're actually just reading headlines that they see in the papers and um, they really need to understand the nuance. And I think they appreciate the technology much more and what it can do for their constituents and for the world, you know, once they really understand how it works. And, you know, this is kind of shocking, but people in our government, you know, in U.S. Treasury and governments around the world, they will literally say, like, why would anyone use Bitcoin? My credit card works just fine. Yeah. I don't understand why everyone wouldn't just like use their credit cards, you know? And right. I mean, it's, it's such a, that kind of statement is coming from such a place of financial privilege. You know, you, you have to think you must have never traveled in your life because this is not the case for many people around the world. Billions of people around the world do not just have, they're not shipped 20 credit cards in the mail when they turn 18. They may not have a bank account. You know, they may be only able to trade in cash. They may not even, you know, their local currency might be inflating by, you know, 30% a year. And yeah. so they can't even hold their local money. They've got to try to like use the black market to get dollars or some other store of value, you know, and they're burying that cash in their backyard. So, you know, it's just a very different situation around the world. I think that when people, you know, these politicians tend to think about Bitcoin, they're thinking about it in terms of, you know, what does it mean in their own country relative to the other services that are available? They're not necessarily thinking more globally, but um, even in the West here, you know, in Canada, we had an example recently where people that were engaged in this protest, this trucker protest, had their bank accounts frozen just for being affiliated with that, for selling coffee to people at the protests. Businesses had their bank accounts frozen. And, you know, that's a pretty scary thing that I think nobody thought that we would see here in North America. But, you know, there you have it, the government seizing bank accounts Mm -hmm. without due process and saying, well, if you have a problem with it, come and sue us, you know, and try to get your account unlocked. You know, if you think you were irresponsibly or wrongfully captured in this dragnet, you know, you were just, you know, walking through the protest when we tagged you. Too bad. Hope you find some money somewhere else to go hire a lawyer to come after us for it. But, you know, that's your recourse. The trucker protests seem to kind of be something that a lot of people in the cryptocurrency industry just like felt like maybe this is one of the reasons we exist. For sure. I mean, and I think at that point, you know, crypto was a lifeline to those people who had been frozen out of their bank accounts. And you don't expect that, you know, day to day to just lose access to your bank account. And what does that mean? What are the downstream effects of that? You know, you can't buy food, you can't pay your rent, you can't pay your employees. And what is like the total impact radius of, of such an event? And, you know, to just 
capture those funds without due process is just insane. So mm -hmm. I think people now see that Bitcoin can be an insurance policy against government overreach. You know, the government does break the law from time to time. And, you know, if you put all your trust in the government and they end up breaking the law, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. And then we saw another example in, in Ukraine recently, which well, was... Jesse, I, I do want to get to the Ukraine topic for sure. But actually before that, just to give our listeners a little bit of context and a little bit of background, just wanted to ask a little bit about Kraken specifically. And I want to hear from yeah. you, what, what do you think makes Kraken sort of stand out as an exchange? I mean, it's a pretty competitive space. There's a lot of different exchanges with a lot of different offerings, but you guys are one of the biggest ones out there. Why would a user come specifically to Kraken versus like a Binance or an FTX or a Coinbase? Great question. So, you know, we're one of the oldest exchanges. We've been around since 2011. The company's over 11 years old now. So we've got, a, I think, a pretty great reputation in the space for being a tried and true trusted platform. We're regularly doing these um, proof of reserves audits, which prove that we actually have the coins that we say we have that we're supposed to have for our clients. Uh, so I think that's a big advantage that we have over others. I think that we're a very international company. You know, so we, we provide support in 50 plus languages. We've got translations in, in many languages for the whole website. We've got local currencies for many countries. You know, So we're supporting Japanese yen, the Durham, Swiss francs, Australian dollar, Canadian dollar. You know, So no matter where you are in the world, you know, I think we've got like a good convenient rail for you to get into crypto, uh, you know, support credit cards. So, you know, our focus really is on the consumer business and bringing in that next billion users into crypto. So I think if you're new to the space, you know, we're really optimized for that kind of first time user experience and that, you know, journey of getting educated, learning about crypto, getting into the space for the first time. But, you know, we started out as a professional trading platform. So those are sort of our roots. You know, you can think of it as a, a company that kind of started as, you know, building F1 cars and then it went into the kind of consumer market. So we've got a really great platform as well for people who want something more sophisticated and, um, you know, advanced traders that want to trade over the API or, you know, are used to trading stocks or Forex with more sophisticated tools. So I think we've got a pretty good comprehensive package of products that serve like a wide range of needs for, for traders. Going a little bit on the Canada process side, I mean, so after the Ukraine invasion, you guys made a point of refusing to block Russian accounts, and you kind of said so because of the company's libertarian values. I guess my question is, like, as a crypto company getting more regulated, as a U.S.-based company, is it even possible to kind of maintain libertarian values as a U.S.-based crypto company? Yeah, we try. <laughs> you know, so, you know, the Russian thing, obviously, you know, there's revenue coming out of that, right? And we're a U.S.-based company. And if you ask a company to voluntarily turn away revenue, I think that's pretty tough to do. I mean, ultimately, what that means is killing jobs for people, right? So if the government were to say, hey, we want you to shut down $5 million a year of your revenue, I would say, okay, who do you want me to fire? Because, you know, which which employees in the US do you want me to, to let go? Because that's $5 million of salaries that isn't going to people. So, you know, it's a tough thing to just do voluntarily, especially if you're competitors. And, you know, as you said, this is a very competitive space. Just because we do it doesn't mean our competitors are going to do it. You know, it's not like the, this is one of the great things about the crypto industry is that Unlike the stock markets, there's not a monopoly on who trades a particular stock. With stocks, you have they're all traded at one exchange. That exchange has a monopoly. If that exchange wants to do maintenance or pause trading or go offline, they can do that. And the world freezes, you know, for that asset. There's there's literally no trading. But in crypto, you know, Bitcoin can be traded anywhere. There are, you know, over a hundred exchanges where you can trade Bitcoin. So Kraken freezing it doesn't mean that people are not going to trade it. It just means that Kraken's customers that wanted to trade it are going to go to another platform where they can. And they may not just be going there to trade that one asset. They may be going there, you know, with their whole portfolio. 
So it's a very tough thing to do when it's not universally enforced. And just as a, a matter of public policy and you know what we think is is right in the world, sanctioning individual people, you know, preventing them from accessing financial services, I don't think has been shown to be effective in the world at sort of, you know, dislodging tyrannical leaders or, you know, improving the lives of people. You know, if anything, it just it makes things worse for people and makes them less able to fight against, you know, the regime that controls them. When you remove their ability to transact with the rest of the world, you're really kind of confining them and putting them even more at the mercy of of their authoritarian leaders. So we don't think it's a good thing for the world. I do want to talk about sanctions because that's an interesting point as well. Obviously, there's been a lot of headlines about you recently, Jesse, and one of them was from the New York Times. And they had reported that OFAC is investigating Kraken for potential sanctions violations, that the investigation has been going on since 2019. And one thing that I wanted to hear your thoughts on was just the internal response the New York Times reported on. They had said that in an internal conversation that you, this is their phrasing, Jesse Powell suggested he would consider breaking the law in a wide range of situations if the advantages to the company outweighed potential penalties and that you were sort of talking about weighing the risk about whether it's worth following certain legal requirements. What was sort of your interpretation of that and what was the context around some of those comments that you made? Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of gray area in crypto. You know, a lot of the law is 80, 100 years old that was put into place before the internet was even imagined. And... Um, you know, there are laws that just don't make sense that are on the books or that don't completely capture what crypto is doing. You know, they assume that there needs to be like a middleman in place in order to execute certain types of transactions or that, you know, you need a third party custodian to do things. You know, they didn't imagine a world where crypto exists. And so, you know, sometimes we're trying to understand what is legal in a particular jurisdiction. You know, what does the black letter of the law say versus like, what was the intent of this policy? And did they really intend to basically block all transactions between two individuals or were they really just trying to block transactions where there might be a middleman who could steal from either side? And so, you know, with so much gray area, sometimes we just have to take a risk and look at what the public policy implications were and, um, you know, what they were trying to achieve and be able to argue, you know, and, and also it's, there's a question of like, if we got this wrong, is it a speeding ticket or is everyone going to jail? You know, in some risks, we, we think, where there's a gray area, if we have a, a good argument and you know we've done our diligence, we've done our research, and we think we have a reasonable position, it's rare to find a position in crypto where you are just 100% confident that you are totally in the clear. And so a lot of what we do is just this risk-based analysis of like, what are the chances that a regulator is going to challenge this position? And that if, if we go all the way with them, that we're going to end up losing you know, we have to take this kind of risk-based approach to many decisions that we make. It's not just about gray areas though, right? I mean, you said like you have to consider whether it's worth the risk or not to follow the legal requirements. So those are things that are sort of black and white. Is that sort of what you're saying that you would still consider breaking the law if it were something that wasn't a gray area or it was something that was codified? Um, you know, it really depends on the situation, right? Like if I'm my brother is bleeding to death in the backseat of my car, am I going to consider breaking the speed limit to get him to the hospital? Uh, yeah, I would consider doing that. You know, like there at times there may be a risk reward trade off and and it may be justifiable. Obviously, we don't do that as as a normal course of business. And, you know, I think what I meant there and, you know, obviously, I, I don't know what the New York Times is referring to, you know, if they have a specific quote or something, you know, everything they said was like completely taken out of context. 
So, well, that, that's what I wanted to ask you too, was what was the context around these quotes? I mean, specifically it said, you said that not following the law would by default be ill-advised, but it always has to be considered as an option. Were you referring to the OFAC investigation or some oh, other like situation going no, on? No, definitely not. You know, I, I think the OFAC rules are, are very, um, there's, there's strict liability. They're very clear. If you serve a client who is a sanctioned individual, you know, you're, you're a strict liability. It doesn't matter if you knew or not, you know, whether whether they were on the sanctions list at the time you served them. And, you know, that goes for like a ton of stuff, you know, businesses that have nothing to do with financial services, you know, have to, to look at this stuff. So I think the question with the OFAC stuff for ordinary businesses comes down to like, you know, what is your risk of, you know, if you're selling gumballs, you know, through a vending machine, does your gumball vending machine have to like KYC everyone because there's a chance that someone on the sanction <laughs> list might want to buy some gumballs out of your vending machine, you know, technically, yeah, you should be doing that. And if you sell some gumballs to the wrong guy, you could be sanctioned. Uh, you could get fined by OFAC. I mean, in reality though, they're not going to come after you, right? Like they're not, they're pursuing kind of bigger fish. And so I'm sure every day there's a taco stand that's violating OFAC sanctions. It's just that OFAC is not going to come after those people. What does that mean for Kraken or for a crypto exchange? Like in what situations would you say that not following the law should be considered as an option? Um, yeah, I think that would have to be a pretty extreme situation. Well, I guess what we're trying to get at is this like you, you talked about the Russia stuff is like, well, I'm losing revenue. I'm losing potential like employees here. I guess is this like is this purely like a revenue thing where you guys just want to be a successful company? Or is this like strongly like crypto libertarian idealism where it's just like, what laws do we want to follow, basically? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just a, a general ethos of like always thinking about, you know, when the government tells you to do something are they always acting morally? And, um, you know, I think they're just, there might be a case where the government tells you to do something that is like super terrible. And, you know, you always want to think about it, I mean, even as a member of the military, right? If you get a command and you feel like, okay, well, uh, I got the command to shoot up this whole village of, of you know, civilians. Uh, do I want to do that or not? You know, technically maybe I'm, I'm going to be violating my orders by not doing that. But you know, I feel like this was the wrong choice, you know, that, that maybe my, my commanding officer or, you know, the government or whatever is just wrong about this one. And so I'm going to challenge it. And, uh, you know, technically I'm going to be, uh, you know, violating the law by not doing this evil thing that they're asking me to do, but, you know, I'm going to be proven right in the end. Um, you know, I think, I think people should always think about that as in life in general, you know, but yeah, of course, as a business, if there's something clear cut, I think you have to think about this all, all the time anyway, right? Is like, you know, when you're parking your car and you don't pay the meter, right? Like you're you're going to run into the store for five minutes. Are you breaking the law when you're doing that? Are you just rolling the dice? You're taking kind of a risk-based approach. You know, you're like, okay, 1% chance I'm going to get a ticket here. The ticket's going to be 25 bucks. Okay, I'll, I'll like roll the dice on on doing this thing. You know, do you, so do you feel like regulators generally like, I don't know, there haven't been like any massive fines for any crypto companies so far. It feels like, I guess, like, do you generally think that like regulators aren't necessarily fighting with the firepower that's going to discourage thinking like what you have right there? You know, I think that they pick numbers to settle with. You know, I can't recall a single instant where this has gone all the way through a court proceeding. Sure. And the Ripple case is still ongoing. So we'll see what happens there. And, and maybe <laughs> yeah. they'll get to a settlement before we actually get a, a judgment. But I think they tend to settle for amounts that they think people are willing to pay to make the problem go away so that mm -hmm. they don't have to prove out their case in court. And, you know, if you instead of, you know, a million dollar fine, you said this is going to be a hundred million dollar fine. I think you would have people taking it all the way to fight that. And so, you know, it's easier to just go around slapping people with smaller fines and collecting little paychecks 
every day than it is to actually have to like fight some big case and risk that you are going to be wrong in the end. And uh, as a regulator, you know, if your position is proven to be wrong, you can't go around collecting little paychecks anymore. You know, everyone's going to say, mm-hmm. well, we have this case against you. It was shown that you actually can't enforce this. And so therefore, you know, we don't have to pay you. Yeah. They're, they're incentivized to do this sort of regulation by enforcement where they come up with a number that basically you're willing to pay. It's a speeding ticket, right? It's not like mm-hmm. they're not trying to like scare the whole industry and the whole world into shutting down. They want yeah. to go around and collect paychecks. And so unfortunately, I, I think it's it's sort of like patent trolling, you know, in a way. It's like they come up with a number that you're willing to pay to not fight the case and prove them wrong. And uh, there's so many companies in the space that can go around and do that. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit for them to go around mm-hmm. and, and find people. And there's basically like no statute of limitations on a lot of this stuff. So as we saw with the Ripple case, they went back and said something you did seven or eight years ago, which we've known about the whole time, you know, we've now decided to come after you for. So there's just an unlimited, you know, as time goes on, an right. unlimited pile of stuff that they can just dig into and pull out from, you know, a decade ago and say, now, now we want to prosecute you for this. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit. Yeah. I mean, like, all, I, I'm, I'm intensely curious how all the Ripple stuff ends up. That's an interesting saga. But I guess switching gears a little bit, you know, we talked about this OFAC investigation with the Times. There was another New York Times piece that came out this summer, and it didn't paint a particularly flattering picture of Kraken's company culture or you specifically. I mean, there were these reports that there were conversations that you contributed to where employees felt, you know, what you said was hurtful. What's your interpretation of the situation? Because I guess, you know, as a third-party observer, it didn't look great for you. Yeah, actually, it, it turned out really well for us. We got a lot of people out of the company who I think were not culture fits and we had like record-breaking. How many people? Just curious. Um, it was about, what was it, 1% of the company in total. So, you know, it was like, I don't know, what is that? 30 people or something like that. I uh, took the the jet ski for stated like culture, you know, mission mismatch kind of reasons. So very small percent of the company, you know, it was like 1% of the company, but you know, that 1% was very disruptive to everyone else. And um, we're a very global company. We've got people from like 70 different countries working at the company all together in one workspace. You know, there's definitely not like a monoculture of, you know, like what we what you would find in just an office in San Francisco. You know, we have many different cultures that see the world in different ways. And, you know, I think you have to be, just as when you travel, you know, if you're an experienced traveler, you know, when, when you go to another place, you kind of, you don't just show up and say, you know, in America, we do things this way. And, and I demand my, you know, hamburgers yeah. with like extra cheese. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I guess there was, there was that angle, but there's also just the angle of the piece, which was kind of like, well, what's the CEO's role in kind of saying some of this stuff? And should the CEO of this big company really be like going into the company slacks and being like, who can say the N word or like something like that? Like, is that the CEO's role? Yeah. You know, well, uh, maybe not. I think it could be, you know, I, I happen to major in philosophy in college. So I, I enjoy taking up these philosophical debates about things, you know, and, and public policy, you know, my, my emphasis was ethics and law. And, um, you know, I've always been very interested in public policy and, you know, if we're going to have a policy at the company, I think it should make sense. And, you know, Probably my the thing I did wrong there was probably open it up to debate with people that were not coming from a place of you know good intentions. They kind of already had their mind made up and, and they weren't in a position well, of being able to be convinced of, of a different view. I mean, some of these quotes, I mean, if you're not necessarily pushing back on the actual things, like I can imagine that someone who's seeing their CEO saying like American women are being brainwashed, like they're I, not going to be coming at that response with like, 
oh, this is a guy I should give the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, like, those quotes. That I, you know, I, I guess like how are like female employees supposed to want to work somewhere where they see their boss saying something well, like that? That was completely taken out of context. And I was talking about everyone being brainwashed uh, at the same time. So, But you said American women specifically. What was the context there that that's being yeah, and I meant I, and also, you know, if you had the whole block of text, it would be everyone in the world is brainwashed and including me. And, uh, you know, I was talking I, about I mean, you also said that, you know, questions about women's intelligence are not as settled as as one might have initially thought. Uh, is that no, I didn't something you I didn't believe? say that. I definitely did not say that. Um, I think I said something along the lines of the differences between men and women are maybe not as settled as as people might have believed, you know, they're believe it. No, what are the, what are the differences you were getting at? Um, there are all sorts of differences. You know, some people had the view that uh, the only difference between men and women is their height, basically. Uh, and, um, you know, I disagree with that. I think, you know, there, there was a, a lengthy discussion that produced many studies about, you know, all kinds of differences between men and women around the world. R- Right. But it seems like what you were specifically talking about was differences in intellect. Uh, no, I, I don't believe that there's any difference in, in intellect between <clears throat> men and women. And I, I didn't like focus on that specifically. Okay. Got it. Um, I, I am curious about one thing. I mean, I, I know that you've been pretty clear and upfront in stating sort of what the values are at the company and you guys put out this manifesto. And like you said, a number of employees chose to leave. Mm-hmm. But I also know, based on what I've heard you say, that you're a big proponent of free speech and the free exchange of ideas and sort of having this open discourse. And I guess I'm curious about, like, how can you actually ensure that there is that robust debate going on and different perspectives are contributed if if everyone at your company has the same economic ideology? Um, well, you know, I think to run a company, you need to have a certain level of cohesion. You know, we're not optimizing for max diversity at the company. You know, I don't want people at the company who think that fiat currency is the best thing ever and uh, that crypto should be destroyed. I don't need that perspective inside of my group that I'm trying to get all to do, you know, one thing together as a team. So, you know, I think in terms of financial services, you know, I think that's the one thing we're all aligned on at the company is that Bitcoin is good for the world. Fiat currency has been a disaster. And what people bring from the 70 plus countries that we have people working from is, is the perspective and the relationship with money where they're at and how crypto helps people where they're at and, um, you know, how people think about money differently around the world. And so, you know, we don't ha- need to have different perspectives on everything that exists in the universe. You know, we have to come together with some common agreement about, you know, the mission, basically, you know, we can disagree about other things like which religion is correct or, you know, what's the best flavor of ice cream. It doesn't really matter. And we can debate those all day as long as that doesn't get in the way of, you know, the mission, which we're all here together to do. I, one thing I've noticed is just, and maybe this is the toxicity of Twitter more than anything, but like sometimes in the crypto community, if you say something out there like, Hey, like, I wish there were more women in the crypto space, I'll get some responses that'll be like, Oh, well, why don't you go contact the DEI head of Bitcoin? Oh, wait, there isn't one or like something like that. But, you know, expecting there to be like people from different races or people from different genders in a community that you want to represent a diverse set of interests that seems like a pretty like black and white good thing. Like, do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, for sure. You know, crypto is, is for the whole world, right? Every user of US dollars should also be a user of crypto. So, you know, it's, it's something for everybody. You know, I think there's probably a distorted perspective. If you just look at Twitter or if you look at Reddit or just online communities in general, they tend to be male, you know, STEM in general tends to be male, but crypto adoption 
you know, Square did a really great study on this. It, it really varies by geography. And, um, you know, if you just look at the U.S., it looks very male. But if you look abroad, you know, there are areas of the world where women have more knowledge than men or, or more active crypto users than men. Uh, so, you know, I think it's important to always look at crypto from a global perspective and not, you know, according to a specific geo or particular niche online community, you know, that's already very male oriented. So, you know, I think there are a lot of women in crypto, you know, maybe less so in the STEM fields, but, you know, Kraken has something like 35% women at the company. You know, I think that there's a ton of women out there who, who are just kind of less active on Twitter, you know, for a bunch of reasons, uh, you know, Twitter generally being a hostile place and, you know, women not spending so much time on it. Jesse, I'm curious about, you know, after all of this has been sort of said and done, and I, I know we had some back and forth on what you said and what the context was, but when you look back at your tenure on Kraken, which I, I know you're still CEO, but it's coming to a close. Is there anything you would have done differently? Oh, great question. I think it's easy to look back in hindsight and wish that you had done things differently. But, you know, with the information at the time, the space is evolving so quickly. You kind of have to, you know, I think the people that have survived have been have been able to make good decisions or the best decisions, you know, possible given the information that was available at the time, given the evolving space. You know, I think we've done pretty well at, at navigating that. There's just something new that comes up every day in crypto. And you've kind of got to take the information you have and just do the best that you can. You know, I think there may be some things in terms of like product prioritization, you know, the order of things. So as an example, you know, we started building the, the professional trading product first. And, you know, maybe it would have been better to build the, the retail product first. That's certainly the direction that Coinbase went, right? They built a retail product and then added the, the professional product after we kind of did the opposite. That was largely driven by availability of bank accounts in the United States, you know, back in 2013 to 2015, you know, the basically impossible to get a bank account in the US. So some decisions were kind of driven by necessity, but you know, I think this is obviously a huge benefit that new entrants to the market have today is they're in a very different world where they have access to things that just didn't exist 10 years ago. You know, they they can see everything that happened and, and how the industry has played out. And so, you know, it's tough. I don't have any any major regrets in terms of like, you know, the decisions that I've made. I feel like I've made pretty good decisions for for the time that was there. Uh, and I feel like the company's in a really good place now. And um, you know, that's why I feel comfortable handing things off. You know, I don't feel like I'm leaving Dave with any major bombs to defuse or anything like that. So I think it's a good time to step away. You know, I guess when there's the announcement about Dave, one of the things was that you guys were very emphatic, like the company culture isn't changing. I guess though, you see a couple big New York Times stories about your company. And I guess just like, did any of these controversies around culture or your own messages as CEO, like factor into this decision to not maybe be the number one public face of Kraken? No, definitely not. We actually did a survey following the jet ski program and employee engagement and satisfaction is, is also at an all-time high. So, Well, because the people who weren't satisfied probably left. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and then the people that are, are left are happy to not be distracted by those people anymore. And um, so, you know, I think for the company, everyone felt like it was really is a really good thing. And um, the people that are still here, you know, are, are believers in the values and, you know, are aligned with the culture. And so I think getting that behind us was, was something that I definitely wanted to do before handing it off to Dave. You know, I didn't want to saddle him with that responsibility. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's something I felt I could do as, as the founder CEO to make a call like that and to say, you know, this is what the company's culture is. This is what we believe. And, you know, if you're going to be a distraction, you know, you can take a hike. And I think that would be a hard thing to put on a brand new CEO coming in. So, you know, it was definitely something that I wanted to get behind us uh, before handing off. Uh, so I feel like, yeah, you know, we're in a really good place, but me stepping away was something that has been planned for over a year. Doesn't have anything to do with, you know, the, the recent culture stuff. 
Hey, Jesse. Well, thanks for joining us and answering a bunch of our questions. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Great. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, likewise. We'll be back every week with interviews with the experts in the Web3 space. Catch Anita, Jackie, and myself every Thursday for the latest in crypto news. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform. And subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and more from our guests can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Chain underscore Reaction. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.